I'll give an amen to that. Thank you. I will rise. So, we're at Easter, part two. Isn't that great? Just because this is where we are in the book of Luke. But you know what? Really, every Sunday is Easter. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, isn't it? That's what we're about. That's who we are. We're people of the resurrection. So we're going to celebrate that today. But we're not going to stop at the resurrection. We're going to keep going on in the story of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, he came back to life, and then he appeared to many, and then he ascended in the clouds. Wow. There's a lot going on there, isn't there? So let's take a look at this. We're going to be in Luke 24. We're doing the chapter. This is it, the grand finale. I've loved this book. I hope that you've learned as we've gone through it, and I want to encourage you to keep going back to Luke. It's a beauty. Use all four Gospels because they all bring out new things and creative things, and it's, it's just beautiful. It's interesting that none of the four Gospels describes the actual resurrection. They basically pick up the story before and after the discovery of the empty tomb as well as Jesus' appearances to his disciples. That's what they focus on in the, in the last parts of their books. There's real no attempt on the part of the writers to embellish the event of the resurrection. They're not making this up. They weren't eyewitnesses to it. They didn't see it, but they saw him. They saw the resurrected Savior, and that's why they're apostles, and that's why we can put faith in the story that they wrote and they wrote down for us. What does the resurrection mean to us? I went over this a little bit on Resurrection Sunday, but so much. But let me just capsulize it a little bit in some short sayings. Number one, the sacrifice for our sins is complete. Our sins are forgiven. Isn't that beautiful? Our sin bearer went to the cross, and then he rose. Death has been defeated. Death is only an event, not a state of being. We will be raised. I will rise. We just sang that. In Christ, we will be raised. Satan's doom is sealed. His head has been crushed, Genesis 3.15. Evil has been answered. It doesn't have the final say. We have a hope that's alive. 1 Peter 1, remember that? Back on Resurrection Sunday, we, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we have something to share with others, something that matters. If you think about it, without the resurrection, what would we have to share with anybody? We wouldn't have good news. We wouldn't have the gospel, would we? It's pretty important, pretty significant. S. Lewis Johnson said, the resurrection was God's amen to Jesus, it is finished. Isn't that beautiful? He is risen. He is risen indeed. We're a little slow on that. He is risen. He is risen I caught you by surprise a little bit. I'll forgive that one. That's okay. I entitled this sermon today, Unfinished Business, uh, for a lot of different reasons. In the, Luke 24, there's three stories that we're going to go through, three accounts of Jesus and people coming in contact with the reality of the resurrection. So we're going to be looking at those. You know, if you think about it, Jesus could have died, went into the tomb, and then went directly up to heaven. He could have, but he didn't. He stayed around for 40 days on this earth, and I'm so glad he did. 
because it was in those 40 days that he established the faith of his disciples because when he died and went into that tomb, trust me, they were not disciples of faith, were they? <laughs> they were fearful. They were doubtful disciples. And what I see in the story of the gospel, what I see in the story of the resurrection is that Jesus can use disciples that are fearful, that are doubtful to do great things for him. That's you and me, isn't it? So I'm so glad he stuck around for those 40 days before he left and went back to heaven because he had some unfinished business that he needed to take care of with his disciples. All three accounts that we read about today, with the exception of the ascension, all three of the accounts occur on Resurrection Sunday, the same day, probably within just a few hours of each other. Things are going to happen pretty quick here in Luke 24. And all three of these accounts have the same format. And your note taker, there's basically four common things that happen in each of the three stories. There's the disciples wondering, what is going on? So we have the wondering of the disciples. The second part is a rebuke from angels and from Jesus himself, a rebuke for their lack of faith and their lack of understanding of Scripture. That's going to be common in all three stories. Then we have instruction in the Word of God from angels and then from Jesus himself to the disciples. And then the last piece is witnessing to the truth of the resurrection. The people that came and encountered the angels, and then later Jesus are going to witness the truth of the resurrection. So let's pick up this in Luke 24, verses 1 to 12 tells us the account of the women at the tomb. This is a beautiful story. So verses 1 through 12 first. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? Great question. He is not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. How's that? Peter, however, got up and he ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. He went away wondering to himself what had happened. This is the story, the first encounter to the empty tomb. If you read the last couple verses in the last chapter, Joseph of Arimathea came and asked for the body of Christ from Pontius Pilate, and he was granted that. And so he laid the body of his Savior, and he loved Jesus. He laid the body of his Savior in his tomb that he had prepared. The women, it says, were watching. They saw where the body went. They saw the tomb that it went into, and they were there. And so on Sunday now, very early in the morning, they're going to return back to that same tomb. They knew where the tomb was. And as we talk about this story and as we unravel 
this last chapter, it's so important to point out that there's a lot of false theories about the resurrection that have been put out there, down through history, all the way through, and all of them do not match up to facts, all of them. In fact, here's the reality. There's an empty tomb in the city of Jerusalem to this day. How do you explain that away? People have tried, but when people honestly look at the facts and the reality, they come to faith if they honestly look at it because you can't explain it away. It's true. It's still empty to this day. So the women knew which tomb Jesus was laid into. So this idea of a false theory that says, hey, maybe they went to the wrong tomb, no, they knew the tomb. They were there when he was put into it on Friday in the evening. The women came first, not the disciples. It, again, this refutes the theory that the disciples stole the body. Where did that theory come from? The Roman rulers, right? That was the first one because they wanted to explain away, we have a problem here. We have an empty tomb. How are we going to explain this to everybody? So they instructed the guards and they themselves went out and began to say to people, well, his disciples stole the body. There's a lot of problems with that theory. So many I can't even, won't even go into it, but we know where it came from. It was false. But the fact that the women came first before the disciples to the empty tomb shows us it wasn't the disciples that stole that body because the women were there first. Now, there's a picture of the garden tomb in Jerusalem and on my bucket list in my life, this is one of the places I want to see. I haven't been there. There's two sites in Jerusalem where they think maybe the tomb is. One is a huge tomb of the sepulcher, it's called. The huge structure sits over it. This is the garden tomb, a smaller tomb. It's a beautiful place there in Jerusalem. I'd love to see it. And I just want to read this little explanation. What is going on with the tomb? A rich man like Joseph of Arimathea would likely have a tomb carved into solid rock. This tomb was in a garden near the place of crucifixion. It tells us that in John 19. The tomb would have a small entrance and perhaps one or more compartments where bodies were laid out after being wrapped with linen strips smeared with spices, aloes, and ointments. Customarily, the Jews left these bodies alone for a few years until they decayed down to the bones. Then the bones were placed in a small stone box known as an ossuary. The ossuary remained in the tomb with the remains of other family members. So it was a family tomb for Joseph of Arimathea. The entrance to the tomb was blocked by heavy circular-shaped stones securely rolled in a channel so only several strong men could move it. And it was sealed, right? We know that from the account. This was done to ensure that no one would disturb the remains. Again, that theory, the disciples stole the body, baloney. Joseph probably didn't like it that the value of his family tomb decreased because the Romans decided to crucify people nearby. Yet it reminds us that in God's plan, the cross and the power of the resurrection are always permanently and closely connected. The cross and the tomb are always permanently and closely connected in the plan of God. And we're going to see that in this account today. This was a new day. It says they came on the first day of the week. This was a new Sabbath. By the book of Acts, chapter 20, we're going to be reading that the disciples of Jesus took the first day, Resurrection Sunday as their Sabbath now, 
as followers of the risen Lord rather than Saturday, which was the traditional Sabbath for Jewish people. Something significant had happened that changed their life and changed their identity, and it was the resurrection. So Acts 20 is the first recorded time where they met on the first day of the week, and that became their habit down through church history. They went to the tomb to complete the burial process, to add to the process that had been begun by both Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, by the way. In the book of John, it tells us that both were there when his body was put into the tomb. Remember Nicodemus? Came to Jesus by night. He came to faith. He came to love his Lord. I lo- this is a beautiful reminder of that. They expected to see, in fact, they were discussing, Mark tells us, on their route to the tomb, how are we going to get that rock? What are we going to do about the stone? We have a problem. They expected to see it as it was when they left it on Friday, didn't they? That was their expectation. But when they got there, it was totally different. The stone had been rolled away, and the door, they could look into the tomb. By the way, the stone had been rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let people look in. Jesus could have been resurrected right through that stone. We know he came through doors with his resurrected glory. It wasn't for him that the stone was removed. It was so that people could see and actually enter in and see that there was no more body in there. And I love in verse 3 that Luke refers to Jesus as Lord Jesus. This is a title of resurrection. He's the Lord Jesus, Luke says. The angels appear, verses 4 and 5, the angels are all of a sudden they're there, two men in clothes. It's interesting that Luke begins with an announcement by angels to shepherds at the birth of Jesus. Remember that story? Back in early stages of Luke. And he's going to end his book with an announcement by angels to women. Now, why is that significant? Because both shepherds and women in Jesus' day in first century Jewish culture were very unimportant. If you wanted to really get things out there and if you wanted to show that your religion was the real one, why would you announce this to shepherds of all people and to women. Why? Luke says because Jesus valued people of all spheres, of all throughout culture. Both of them were the first to hear the good news. And I love the question the angels pose to the women. Why do you look for the living among the dead? This is a very logical question. Why are you looking for living amongst the dead? They were surprised that the women were surprised, if you think about it, that when the women showed up and they didn't see a body. I think there's application for us, this looking for living among the dead. We should not expect spiritual life among the spiritually dead. Those that don't know Christ are spiritually dead. We're told that in Scripture, so we shouldn't expect spiritual life from them. We shouldn't be looking for the living amongst the dead. And secondly, We shouldn't be looking for Jesus, our living Savior, amongst dead things, such as religious traditions, which are fine, but they're not Him, such as man's rules, such as human effort. Those things don't get us anywhere. Why do we look for the living amongst the dead? And then there's some instructions by the angels, verses 6 through 8. They say, He is not here. He has risen. Isn't that beautiful? He is not here. Remember how he told you when he was in Galilee? 
Go back to the early ministry of Jesus when you were up there in Galilee up north and he told about it and they reference and they quote him. Remember what he told you, the fact that he was going to be handed over to sinners, that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to be put in a tomb, but that he was going to be raised again on the third day. Remember? And it says he must be in verse 7. He must be. It's all part of... Two weeks ago, I spoke of this. It's all part of God's plan, isn't it? This is not something that happened by surprise to Jesus. He must be. It was God's plan for it. And it says in verse 8, they remembered his words. These are the first notes of hope. The light starts to go on in their head. Only Jesus' words could change their, their hearts and give them hope. So what do they do? they got to tell somebody. They got a witness in verses 9 to 12. They bring their report to the group of the disciples. It says the 11, because Judas Iscariot is no longer with them. We know that that story, how he had betrayed Jesus and he had committed suicide. So he's no longer there, but 11 plus the others. Don't know who the others are. Book of Acts, early on, it says there are 120 disciples there in that upper room the day of Pentecost, so very possibly that was part of it, but there was a lot of them there, but definitely the 11 that had followed Jesus. There's another theory about the resurrection that says Jesus, when he was on the cross, didn't really die. He just kind of passed out because he lost a lot of blood and he was tired, so when he got into the tomb, it's called the swoon theory, he just kind of revived again. So it wasn't really a death, it was a revival of sorts. The problem with that theory and what we see here is the women would not have been excited as they come back and report to the disciples if it was just a resuscitation of Jesus. Jesus was not just a survivor. He was a conqueror. He had conquered death. He had come back to life. So that theory doesn't hold water either. Verses 10 tells, gives us the names of three of the women, and then it says plus others. But there were three that were identified by name, Mary Magdalene. We know from the book of Luke, chapter 8, that Jesus had cast out seven demons from her. She had come to know Jesus in a very real way. She was there. She loved him. Joanna, his name is mentioned. One of the women who provided for Jesus, she was a woman of means. She was the wife of one of Herod's stewards. So she was upper crust society, probably had money, and it says in Scripture that she provided for the needs of Jesus and the disciples. And then there's Mary, the mother of James. Jesus had 12 disciples. Two of them were named James. And then he had a brother named James. So it's very confusing. There were John and James. This is not the mother of them, the sons of Zebedee. This is the mother of the other disciple. He's called James the Less. How would you like to be called the Less? Real nice. Or son of Alphaeus, either one. But he was one of the disciples, and this was his mother, who was there that witnessed this tomb. Then it says, I, the disciples' response. This is great news. We knew it. We're excited. Let's go tell people. Let's get busy. What's it say? Verse 11. They didn't believe, number one, and then they, it seemed like nonsense to them. Why would they say that? Well, It's important in the first century, the testimony of women was not deemed authoritative. It was not accepted in a court of law, for example. Men could testify, women could not. Luke's inclusion of this incident serves to emphasize his high regard for women. Something's changing here now. 
In fact, Josephus, in his great work, he says, from women let no evidence be accepted because of their levity and recklessness. How's that? Seemed like nonsense to them. Are you kidding me? Really? These are the apostles. There's, really? Wow. It's, it's amazing to me. Again, this does away with another false theory that says maybe the disciples just invented this story. Maybe they were so wanting it to be true that they just forced it and they invented it. Does that sound like it fits with the, the facts here? Here's the reality. These were not men poised on the brink of belief and just needed a little nudge. They were sitting way over, they were skeptics at this point. They didn't believe at all. Verse 12 says that Peter, and we know that John went with him from the book of John, they ran to the tomb and witnessed the same thing. Again, probably because he didn't accept the testimony of the women. But he wanted to see it for himself, him and John, and they ran to the tomb and they saw it. And they recorded what they saw and it talks about Peter wondering, still wondering what's going on. Jesus still has not been seen, but things are about to change. The next story that we have is the, on the road to Emmaus, and this story is only found in the book of Luke, and it's a beautiful story of the two disciples. Let's read this one, verses 13 to 35. It says, that same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Busy weekend, right? As they talked, discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and he walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Knowing full well what they were talking about. They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? A little irony. What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Notice that it's the Jews who did it. We're responsible. The Jewish leaders did this. It wasn't just the Romans. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Did you catch that vision of angels? Was it a vision of angels or was it really angels there? We'll get back to that. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, Jesus, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they argued him strong, urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day's almost over. So he went into the house to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. 
They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road, opened the scriptures to us? Well, what's going on? What's wrong with us? What did they do? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Then they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So this is the first record in the book of Luke of Jesus actually appearing to disciples. And it starts out very similar. They were wondering. They were walking along the road, probably returning from the feast, the unleavened bread and the Passover that had happened that weekend. They were probably returning home from that huge celebration and talking about the event that they had witnessed, the crucifixion, seeing Jesus put on a cross and dying and then returning home from that. These were unknown and undistinguished men. Cleopas is named, the other one is not. Some biblical scholars have tried to put Luke as the second one, but I don't see any evidence for that. But just relatively unknown, unimportant people. Again, Luke, that's the story of Luke, isn't it? What were you discussing? Jesus, I love that. What are you guys talking about? Fill me in a little bit. I'm just kind of curious. He just kind of appears, starts walking alongside them. And what we see in verse 17 is a very disappointed hope. As Jesus is talking to them, in their minds, as death of Jesus had put an end to their Messiah, and it says their faces were downcast. There was no hope left. It was over. Everything they had put their hope in had been put on a cross and died. It was a disappointed hope for them. And in verse 21, it was a misguided hope. They said, we were waiting for him to redeem his people Israel. What does that mean? Kick the Romans out. Get rid of the Romans. Overcome the Romans so that Jesus could set up his kingdom here and now. That's what their hope was on. That didn't happen. In fact, it seemed like the Romans kind of got the upper hand a little bit. It was a misguided hope. And what they failed to realize is that Jesus did bring redemption, but not from the Romans, right? He brought redemption from sin by going to the cross for us. And then they said something very interesting there in verse 21. It's the third day since this has has happened. Instead of a statement of hope, because Jesus says on the third day I'm going to rise again, this is a statement of it's over. It's been three days since he was put in that tomb. Statement of loss of hope, not hope. And it's interesting how they're missing it here. They refer to the women's report, the fact that Peter, their companions, Peter and John, had gone to the tomb and seen the, the claws laying there all neatly laid out on the rock. Which, by the way, if the disciples stole the body, would they have taken the time to unravel all the grave clothes, neatly put them on, on the stone there? and then take his body away, it makes no sense, does it? Jesus came through the clothes. They were just left literally where they were. Um, this was a resurrection very clearly. They were wondering, all, everything was lost, but Jesus rebukes them. He says in verse 25, Oh, foolish ones, slow to believe. How's that? You guys don't get it. Your faith needs a little help here. You're slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Everything, look, 
Take a look. Look back into your Old Testament scriptures. It's all over the place back there. The truth of the Messiah, how he's going to come and he's going to give his life and he's going to bring about redemption of his people. Mark Twain has a quote. He says, it's not what I don't understand about the Bible that bothers me. It's what I do understand. Does that hit you like it does me? I think sometimes the reality is it's the things that I do understand about God's word that get under my skin a little bit. They didn't get it. They missed it. Verse 26, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? Jesus is saying, this is all part of a plan. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an accident. It didn't happen by chance. It was part of his plan all the way along. And then in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he began to explain to them and teach them and reteach them the Old Testament scripture. There's a very interesting verse, Luke 16, 31, if you want to shoot that one up there. This is the account of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is in Hades, suffering. It's miserable there. And he speaks to Abraham, and he says, could I please go back and tell my five brothers who are live on earth about this place? I don't want them coming here. And Abraham says, he said to the rich man, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, it's there, just like Jesus said to these men, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Hmm. Reference to Jesus, isn't it? If you don't believe Scripture, which speaks about these things, the resurrection, you're not going to believe that either. He called it, didn't he? That's what's going on here. Jesus had come back to life. Moses and all the prophets had talked about this, but they didn't believe it. Jesus took them on this journey through Scripture. Now, I don't know about you. I've taken Old Testament survey classes, like at college and stuff, which were really great. How cool would that have been with the risen Savior going, okay, let me teach you the Old Testament here. And going back to Moses, Genesis 3.15. Remember after the fall and the curse was there, there was that prophecy, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. Bruising of the heel, crushing of the head. What does all that mean? Let me tell you. Here it is. How about the sacrifice of Isaac with Abraham? What was going on there? Well, let me explain that one to you. How about the scapegoat in Leviticus or the serpent on the pole that was raised up that people, all they had to do was look to and they could be saved? How about the tabernacle? How about all the feasts and all those sacrifices that I established for my people Israel? Let me tell you something about all those. They were pointing to me. How about David and all his psalms and all those statements that he made that seemed a little bit out of context? He was speaking about me. How about the Old Testament prophecies? Isaiah 53 had to be part of that, right? Let me explain Isaiah 53 to you a little bit. Here I am. And he just took him through the Old Testament. What a beautiful, as they're, as they're walking the journey to get to Emmaus, so beautiful. Verse 27 says he explained. The Greek word there means let the text speak for itself. Exegesis. He just said, here's the scripture. I'm just going to teach you the scripture and I'm going to explain a little bit, but here it is. When I preach, I hope to do that. I just, you know, here's the scripture. I'll tell you a little bit about it, but let scripture speak. 
Let the word of God speak. It's not me coming up with this stuff. And that's what Jesus was saying here. Scripture speaks. It always has and always will. Then there was the breaking of the bread in verse 30. It says, he went in, and those four verbs that appear in that verse, took the bread, broke it, gave to them. The four were the same four verbs that were used in the feeding of the 5,000 and in the Last Supper. Now, these two guys weren't at the Last Supper. They might have been at the feeding of the 5,000. But there was something in the breaking of bread that opened their eyes to the reality of who Jesus was. Because it says, when he broke the bread and he gave it to them, they recognized him. Their eyes were opened. There's something very beautiful about that. Maybe they saw the nail prints. Could have been palm or in the wrist of his hand as he distributed the bread. Maybe they saw that. Maybe it was in the manner that he did it. Maybe it was in something he said But in that process of teaching scripture and the breaking of bread, their eyes were opened to who Jesus is. In the reading of scripture, breaking of bread, the risen Lord will continue to be present with us even though he is unseen. Why do we do this communion twice a month? Because we believe that in the breaking of bread there's something there that helps us to see our Savior. So what did they do? Thought about it some more. No, here's what they did. Seven miles out, they're in Emmaus now, seven miles removed from Jerusalem. It's dark. They return back to Jerusalem seven miles to tell the disciples. This excitement is starting to build. And in verses 33 to 35, they explain to the disciples, we've seen him. He's alive. He has risen. He appeared to Peter. Now, Jesus probably told them that, how he had appeared to Peter. So Peter had a reality with Jesus. He knew that Jesus was risen too. And so they come back to the 11 and they begin to describe the excitement is beginning to build. So verses 36 to 53 is the third account. I'll read that one. While they were still talking about this, again, everything's happening quickly here. It's the same day. All this is going on. They've returned back. It's the same day. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Hmm. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. The furthest thing from their mind, by the way, was peace at this point, right? He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he said to them, do you have anything here to eat? I'm hungry. They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Going back to the Old Testament again, the Old Testament scriptures. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer. He will rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. 
When he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Jesus appears, he's been appearing to individuals and to groups, small groups of people, but now he appears to the group, the larger group, right there in their midst. John tells us that they were in a room with closed and locked doors. Explains why they were freaking out at this point and why they thought it might be a ghost, right? Human doesn't come through doors, okay? Now, this is the glorified, resurrected Christ. He was able to do that. Another false theory that people have is a couple ones that come up sometimes is maybe when Jesus resurrected, he was just a spirit or a ghost. Well, we know from this account that's not true, and he's going to give great evidence that he isn't. Or maybe when the disciples said they saw Jesus, what they really saw was a hallucination. Like they really wanted to see Jesus, but they really didn't see Jesus. And what Jesus is doing by being right there in the midst of them is giving them strong evidence that he is there. He says, I want to get your doubts out in the open here. Let's deal with them now before I ascend to heaven. Let's get some clear evidence on the table so that you will know that I have resurrected from the dead and that people down the road, hundreds, thousands of years, will know because you witnessed it, and you're going to record this for people to know way down the road. He rebuked them gently. You know, again, you should know this. You should, come on, guys. You're, you were my disciples. I talked about this all the time. And he invites them, again, to touch flesh and bone. It's interesting, not flesh and blood, which is usually the phrase there, but flesh and bone meaning you can handle it, you can feel it. Bone is a very physical thing, guys. Hands and feet, here they are. I want you to see it with your own eyes. But then he went a step further, and he said, I'm hungry, I'm gonna eat. I want you to see me actually eating something so that you know I am a person, I am a body. And he ate that broiled fish right in front of him. Verse 41 is very interesting. It says, they did not believe because of joy and amazement. Have you ever been in a situation where something is so amazingly wonderful and you're so joyful about it you can't believe what you see? Have you been there? It's just too good to be true. I think that's where the disciples were at this point. They were so blown away at this sudden appearance of Jesus right in the middle of them. And again, they were not looking for him. They were hiding in a closed lock, behind closed locked doors. He's there. All of a sudden, they're so full of joy and amazement, they can't get their minds around it. That's the kind of experience that they're going through here. But again, Jesus rebukes them and says, I'm going to give you all the evidence you need right here. You can touch my physical body, and I'm going to eat fish right in front of you. Then he gives them some instruction. Verse 44, this is what I told you while I was still with you. So I've said it from day one when I called you guys to follow me from when I was with you in Galilee all the way as we made the trip down south to Jerusalem. Everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Those are the three breakdowns of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Tanakh, maybe you've heard that. It's an acronym but there's three sections, broad sections of Hebrew scripture. The Torah is the first one, the first five books of Moses, 
Then there's the, the writings, excuse me, then there's the prophets. And then the third section is the writings, what's called, known as the writings. But all of the books of the Old Testament are included in them. And Jesus says that you can go to any section of the Old Testament, any of the three, and see the story there. It's very clear. And again, he took them through that. He says, I said this while I was still with you. That's a very interesting statement. First thing is, it's me, I. I said that while I. I said it back there. This I is the same person. I'm not a different person. But there's something that's changed. That was then. This is now. Something has been inaugurated that's different. This is the kingdom now. I'm on the other side of death. I was still, I was still with you. Remember that? So he's pointing to a new period. Something has changed here. He's speaking of the gospel 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, tell us that this is an important part of what the gospel is. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preach to you, Paul says, which you received on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. So there's, Scripture is a part of it. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to Scripture. He went to the cross and he died. Brother John did a wonderful job last week of taking us through the account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the trials and the suffering and the time on the cross and the words that were spoken by Jesus. That's all part of the gospel. You need to understand those things. That he was buried. He was put in a tomb, very clearly dead, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Hmm. So this was all known before, wasn't it? And again, going back into the Old Testament, because that was the only Bible they had at this point, to tell them that he was died, he was buried, and that he rose again. So this is the gospel. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. Okay, so you need to understand that first, Jesus says. But then he says, that's not where it ends. Look at verse 47 through 49. He says, there's something I have for you to do. This is the mission instruction. There's gospel instruction. Now there's a mission. Look what he wants them to do. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That's your mission, apostles. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. The gospel is be, to be proclaimed in his name because he is the resurrected Lord. It is to be preached to all nations, not just the Jews now. It's, it's going out. It's going to be preached to all nations. It's going to start here in Jerusalem because that's where you are. It's going to start with my people Israel. That's a priority, but it's going to go out unto all. And then he says, remember what I promised you in the upper room? I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. You're going to receive power from on high because you can't do it in the power that you have here on earth. It's only through the Holy Spirit that you're going to be able to accomplish this mission that I'm sending you on. So I want you to wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes and gives you that power to do what I've asked you to do. And then we have the witnessing part, and this is the, the last three verses, the ascension 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what it says in verse 50 to 53. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, remember he's on the Mount of Olives. Bethany was on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. It's where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. It's where he spent a lot of his time. He says, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. There it is. That's the ascension. So what did they do? They kept it quiet, right? They didn't tell anybody because it's scandalous. No, look what they did. They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They stayed continually at the temple praising God. A couple things about this ascension. The ascension is both a conclusion to the book of Luke as well as a bridge to the book of Acts. We're going to be going to Acts, which is volume two of Luke's writings. We're going to be going there in the fall of this year and kind of continuing. We're going to be jumping into Psalms, by the way, through the summer, but we're going to connect back up to Acts in the fall because the ascension is the bridge. If you read Acts chapter one, it's the ascension. It's what ties them together. There's something very interesting that maybe I'd never caught before. In Luke 9, 31, Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's talking with Moses and Elijah. They're having a little conversation there. And the three disciples had joined them. They're amazed by all this. And this is what Jesus said. It says, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. The word departure in Greek is actually the same word as exodus. In your Bible note, in mine it just says exodus. He spoke of his exodus. And I thought that's an interesting word because here in the story we have the Passover lamb and the story of Passover weekend going on, right? The sacrifice has been made. This is the, our Passover lamb. And now Jesus said, it's time for my exodus. Just like the people of Israel were taken out of Israel, exited through the Red Sea to the promised land, it's time for mine. I'm going to exodus this. And I think that's just a beautiful way of tying all this in together. The idea that he ascended, verse 50, he raises his arm and he gives a blessing to his disciples. There's reference in the Old Testament to the Old Testament priests When they would stand before the people, they would raise their arms and they would give a blessing, God's blessing upon his people. Here's Jesus, our great high priest, right? Blessing his disciples and standing before them and saying just with his arms outstretched. That's what's going on. And it says right in the middle of that, he's taken up into the cloud. Real quickly on the cloud, um, full of meaning, But I just, this Shekinah glory was always symbolized by this cloud, this idea of brightness. God's glory and his presence. We saw it in the desert as they traveled. Pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. It was God's presence and glory was with them. It was over the tabernacle when they'd rest. It would hover. It was the temple when it was built, it was there. It was on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered the top of the mountain when Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments. It was with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was like this cloud covered the mount. Again, this idea of this cloud. Ezekiel, in his great book, talks about the glory of the Lord departing. The, it, throughout the book, it, it's going in different stages, but it, it talks about the glory of the Lord departing and going over 
the wall of Jerusalem. But then in Daniel, it says the Son of Man is gonna return with the clouds. This idea of the glory, the presence of God was with them in the Old Testament, was with them in the life of Christ, has, is departing now, but is gonna return as the Son of Man returning, and we're gonna be with him again. It's interesting in verse 52 and 53, Luke begins his book with Zechariah serving in the temple when he received the announcement about John the Baptist. That was the first chapter. Here we are, we're ending up in the temple in the last verses of this great book. Zechariah serving, the disciples praising God, and there's great joy. Instead of joy being an impediment to belief, they couldn't believe because of joy, joy is now the motivation for their praise, for their sharing and witnessing the resurrection. So here's the last week of Jesus' life in the book of Luke. He enters Jerusalem as a humble king on a donkey. Remember that? He comes in humble. He dies as our sin bearer in Jerusalem. He's put in a tomb and he resurrects as our living hope. And now he ascends as our sovereign returning Lord. Isn't that beautiful? That's the story of Luke, how he wraps it up. The resurrection means a lot to us, and it should, and I talked about that at the beginning. I want to end with about a minute of what the ascension means because it gets overlooked a lot. Number one, the ascension means that Christ's humanity went up to heaven, so will mine. Think about that. Christ's humanity, a God with scars for all eternity. That's significant to me. Number two, it keeps us looking up. Just as the disciples were looking up, they probably got a crink in the neck. We're going to see in Acts 1, the angel said, keep looking, but he's going to come back to the same place. He's going to return. The ascension keeps us looking up. One eye on heaven, one eye living life down here, right? That's what we should be doing. Number three, Christ has been exalted on high. All authority, all power, everything has been put under his feet. He isn't total control of everything. He is the exalted sovereign Lord. He forever lives to make intercession for you and me. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. He conquers all. He is the reigning Lord. He forever lives to make intercession for you and me. Wow. That means a lot. You know, we used to, remember the bracelets, WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? It's a good question, but there's a better question based on the ascension of Jesus, and it's this, W-W-I-D, is that right? W-I-J-D, sorry, here it is. What is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing? He's ascended, he's seated at the right hand of God. It's not what would, you know, yeah, he existed in history, but he exists today. So Jesus is our risen Lord. We need to stop doubting and believe We need to proclaim it. That's our mission, just like it was the disciples. And he is the ascended Lord. We need to live today for him because he is reigning. He is sovereign over all. Amen?